On this episode of the podcast, I discuss a particularly beautiful idea with Professor of Regenerative Biology, Michael Levin, from Tufts University. The idea goes something like this. Imagine if the blueprint for your body, its size, its shape, the arrangement of all the cells, wasn't stored anywhere in your DNA. In fact, imagine there is no blueprint. Blueprints are necessary when building with passive materials like stone and iron, in which case you have to specify where each element goes. If instead your building material acts more like cellular automata, elements that have their own local agency, then you can get fantastic emergent phenomena for free without ever having to lay down any schematic. So the idea is that our DNA doesn't encode the large-scale structure of our bodies, but instead the complex behavior of our cells. We emerge from the collective behavior of millions of tiny biological machines, our cells, each acting in their own individual interests. The depth of this idea is that in application, it has the potential of curing every known medical condition with the exception of infectious disease. Michael and his colleagues are learning how to read and overwrite the bioelectric signals used by our cells to communicate with their neighbors and their environment. By hijacking this electrical signaling, they've been able to create two-headed worms, regrow the legs of frogs, as well as the eyes and other organs. They're now setting their sights towards the possibility of arresting cancers, reversing aging, and limb regeneration in humans. This is a conversation that ranges from key advances in regenerative medicine to questions about the boundaries of what we call life. I hope you enjoy. Escaped sapiens. So your work has many different interesting access points that we could start off with in this conversation. Uh, I mean, we could talk about cancer research. We could talk about designing biosynthetic organisms. We could talk about regenerating limbs. Uh, but I, I decided to start with a question which I think will give sort of a nice general overview of some of what you're doing before we sort of dive into more specific topics. And so the question uh, is one that I've had for a while. And, and it is, if you look at a human brain, Right, there's something like 10 to the 15 different connections, uh, whereas if you look at the human genome, there's something like 3 billion base pairs. So just off, off the bat, it, it seems like there's not enough space in the genome to encode all of the information you need to encode about the human connectome, right, or all the different connections between the various cells. And then not only that, but as you go through your life, your brain actually changes. You, you form new connect connections and, and so on. And so the question, uh, sort of in just general view, is, you know, what is it that sets the structure uh, in a human brain? If if this information isn't encoded in the, in the genome, where is this information encoded, and and, and sort of how is it uh, encoded? Yeah. Um, so let's let's take a step back and <clears throat> just uh, talk about the fact of uh, what, what exactly is in the genome. So so the the important thing is that now we can read genomes, so we know what's in there. And of course, genomes don't directly say anything about the structure of your body, the shape, the symmetry type, the size. N never mind uh, the the precise structure of your brain. What's in the genome is information about proteins. It's information about proteins that every cell gets to have. So the the lowest level molecular hardware of each cell. So bef long before you get to the question of where are the specific uh, con connectomes specified, we have to realize that looking at a genome, we can't even tell what kind of organism we're looking at. Now you can cheat and compare it to other genomes where you do know what the organism is, but, but you know, it's important because people all the time, people say, you know, oh, I, you know, it's one thing for the genome, you know, to encode the body plan, but bioelectricity, how does bioelectricity encode? And I say, take a step back. The genome does not encode uh, directly. Of course, it does not encode the body plan. 
So uh, let me give you what I think is a useful way to think about this, right? Um, <clears throat> the, way that, the way that I think about this is that uh, when, you, when you make certain kinds of machines, those machines can harness various interesting laws of physics and laws of computation. And once you do that, you get a lot of things for free. Just as a really stupid example, if you, you have a triangle and if you evolve two angles of that triangle, you don't need to evolve the third one. You know what it is, right? That's, 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 a, that's a free gift from physics. You don't have to evolve all three angles. So, so here's a better, here's a better uh, gift from physics. If you evolve um, something that acts like a transistor, you can make logic gates and you can make feedback loops and you can make things that reason. Uh, and we know how awesome transistors are. If you evolve something that's sticky, you can harness all the laws of, uh, of adhesion, such as, you know, when you, when you have balls of differential adhesion and you sort of shake them together, the core will end up being the sticky ones outside. You will have, you know, it's kind of a bullseye. You'll get kind of like this bullseye effect. You don't have to evolve that. All you have to evolve is the stickiness. The rest you get for free. So, so what I'm going to say is uh, what the genome does is it encodes, and, and we can talk, you know, we should talk about this. The genome encodes a machine that has amazing properties. But that's all the genome encodes. It encodes the, the initial structure of that machine, which is a cell. That machine, when it uh, proliferates and joins with other such machines, so you get a multicellular creature of some sort, it can harness some really important aspects of physics and computation, and we can talk about what those are. But it isn't because it was in the genome. It's because the genome creates machines that solve problems, and they do various, they do all kinds of interesting things. And I say this, um, there's a couple of good um, illustrations that you can think about here. For example, there's two that I like that I, I talk about with my students. One is, do you know, you ever seen what a, um, what a, what a Galton board is? No. Just oh, wait, imagine. is this these ones where the balls flip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a piece of wood, vertical like this. You knock a bunch of nails into it, and you take a bucket of, of, of metal marbles, and you, and you toss them into the top, and they bounce around, they bounce around, it's all stochastic. And then you get this beautiful bell curve. And now somebody could come along and say, where is the shape of that bell curve encoded? This is an amazing example of morphogenesis. Where is that? You know, they say, I think it's, I think it's in the wood. I'm going to study the wood. And somebody else says, you know what? I think it's in the distribution of the nails or, or the material of the nails. Of course, it's, it's not in any of those things. What you've done is you've created a, a, a machine, which is a boundary condition on the laws of, of the universe. And something amazing comes out, which is this particular shape. The same thing if you make a... Um, if we make an AND gate out of a few transistors, you make an AND gate, and I show you the law, the truth table of this AND gate, and you say, oh man, that is amazing. Wait, wait, where, where's the encoding of this truth table? Where, where is it written down? You say, well, it's not written down anywhere. Say, well, it's gotta be in one of these transistors. And so we, got, we have to wrap our minds around that, that the question of where does it come from, the answer to that question is usually not because it's explicitly you know, sort of written down somewhere. We, we have to be comfortable with these machines pulling these, f these things down from wherever it is that truths of mathematics come from. I, I have no idea where these things live, you know, some sort of platonic space somewhere. But, but that's where, yeah, anyway, that's, that's what I think. So it's sort of like, um, so the image I, I sort of form in my mind is, is sort of like a flock of birds where you have, you know, each individual bird has a very simple set of rules about how far it stays away from its nearest neighbor. And then if you look at the dynamics of the full flock, you get this amazing dynamic uh, emergent flocking behavior. And so the idea is, if, if I understand you correctly, that in, in the body, uh, we also have this emergent behavior, but the mediating sort of 
the, the emergence is mediated by sort of voltages between cells rather than distances between wingtips. And if I understand correctly, what's amazing about what you're doing is not just that you can read those voltages, <clears throat> but that you can feed those vol new voltages back into the system and change the the morphology or the or the behavior of the of the emergent large scale uh, animal. Is that, yeah, is that so a good way of looking at things? It's, it's not bad. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we can. And we can talk about the specifics of it as far as the bioelectricity. I'm sort of at the up, up until now, I've been talking in pretty general terms, just about the idea that if if you see if if cells were passive materials like Legos, if cells were like Legos, then the genome would literally have to have a description of the final product, because you would have to say where every Lego goes. And the genome mm -hmm. doesn't have that and it doesn't need to have that because cells are not passive materials. Now, they're not even just active materials and they're not even just computational materials. They go one step further. They're what I call agential materials, meaning they're themselves, they have agendas, they have various things that they try to do in terms of optimizing and so on. And so when you have a material like this, you don't manage the, you don't micromanage the position of the material. You control the stimuli, the, fa the, the, the various signals that these things are going to give to each other and some other boundary conditions and then you sort of let them do their thing it's guided self-assembly and that's how we who work in and, and some other people who work in synthetic uh, morphology that's how we do it and that's how evolution actually does it as well so is is the behavior and the abilities of our cells is that sort of coming from the fact that we had we came way down the line from single cell organisms and sort of we've retained yeah. this ability on individual cells and that sort of those they, those are the rules that uh, govern the large scale structure that's that's exactly right i mean we are we are walking uh, uh collections of of uh, lo loose confederacies where where these cells are you know they still have have very much um ability to do their own autonomous thing as we see during cancer as we see during uh various kinds of other uh, chimeric experiments we have to uh everything that evolution does to a multicellular organism is done in the context of having to manage uh, these these competencies in in these cells it's the difference between building a tower out of bricks and building a tower out of cats if you want to make a tower out of cats you're going to have to be uh searching a completely different space you're going to be searching a, a space of rewards of 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 incentives uh, right of of things that they that the that your subunits actually care about if you're working with bricks there's good news and bad news. The good news is you don't have to worry about what the bricks want. You can rely on them. They're pretty much all they're going to do is obey the laws of gravity and you can rely on them to pretty much stay bricks and that's it. And right. And so, but, but then you have to micromanage, then you have to know where every brick goes. If you want to build something out of, out of uh, agential materials, you have lots of other possibilities, but you're also going to get surprises and you're also going to be uh, subject occasionally to defections. So that's cancer. That's basically where there's going to be a breakdown of this kind of order and something's going to go off on its own and i've given another talk somewhere called um why robots don't get cancer and this and this is this is why because when you only have one level of of uh of, of building going on then you have no 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 concern of with with defections from that plan so i wasn't planning on speaking about cancer this early in the in the uh, discussion but since you brought it up why why is there anything other than cancer I mean, yeah. if we originally came from single-celled organisms, yeah. they would prefer, they would like to themselves to survive, not their neighbors. So, so why? How did we get to a point where we had any sort of organization at all? Yeah, um, yeah, I think, I think, I think that's that's exactly the right uh, the right question. Is is not why we have cancers? Why is there anything other than cancer? That's exactly right. 
And, uh, you know, th there are many stories about multicellularity and why cells learn to cooperate. I'll give you I'll give you my favorite story, but it's not the only. And, and by the way, you know, multicellularity has been evolution discovered at multiple times. I forget the exact number, but it's it's, you know, something like 40 or more times. So mm -hmm. so there is probably isn't just one story about why this works, but I'll tell you what I think is an interesting one. And this was developed by um, Chris Fields and I. Uh, a few a few years ago, and it's called the the imperial theory of multicellularity, and it works like this: Imagine that uh, every every agent in this in this case every cell we're starting off with cells. Every cell has a fundamental drive. The fundamental drive is to uh, minimize error, prediction error. So this is like the Firstonian sort of active inference kind of paradigm where you are receiving some sort of inputs, you have ex internal expectations about what should happen next. And your goal is to drive that error as low as you can so that you're rarely surprised. It makes sense because if you're surprised all the time by things that go on, you're probably not going to survive very long, right? So, so now you're in this environment. There's all kinds of things happening in this environment, some of them more predictable than others. But what's the, what's the most predictable thing around? Well, it's you. So you, you yourself are the most predictable thing for, for you. So it would be nice if you could surround yourself with copies of yourself so that you, right, you see where this is going, so that you wouldn't be surprised so much. So if you're a single cell, a, a winning strategy is, you know, I'm going to um, divide. And when I divide, instead of letting my daughter cell sort of float off and, and, and we all take, uh, take our, our, you know, take our chances in the weird wide world, what we're going to do is I'm going to, let's say, addict that cell by some goodies that I make, let's say neurotransmitters or something. And let's keep that cell nearby and let's I'm going to surround myself so that inside uh, my environment is quite predictable because I'm basically surrounded by copies of myself. Now, the cells on the outside, of course, are frontline infantry they're, they're They have to uh, they have to deal with the outside world. And so now you get this, this interesting idea where there's the stem cell and the stem cell inside has a niche and the niche is protecting it. And what the stem cell is going to try to do is prevent all of those from reproducing because it wants to be the stem cell and the rest will be the soma, the body, and they're disposable and they have to face the world and do their best, but it's sort of hidden. And so, and so that is kind of the start of multicellularity already, right? That, 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 that drive for predictability and that, that, that drive for error minimization is one, one thing you can, you can see that would, that would certainly um, uh, facilitate the, 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 the um, ability of multicellularity to arise. But then, so how does differentiation, like cell differentiation happen? Because you, now you want some, in order to have complex behavior, I suppose you want different types of cells, you want skin cells and muscle cells and so on. So how does that emerge in your picture um, following this yeah. pathway? I mean, the, and, and that, that, that particular aspect of it isn't something that I've spent a ton of time, uh, you know, uh, studying actually, but um, I think it's pretty uh, reasonable to think that you know, inside of every cell is a set of biochemical and biophysical processes that are fundamentally equivalent to to like a like a neural network, right? Um, this this idea that there's a controller inside, and the controller can have all kinds of complexities. It it even single cells can have some some memory. They have some prediction power going forward. There's some there's some complex controllers, and you can easily imagine that you can that controller can have rules like with a certain history of inputs. I'm going to take actions X, Y, Z, but if my inputs are different, I'm going to take actions A, B, C, and those actions can be specializations. And so now you can say, okay, if I've received such and such uh, a stimulus, I'm going to become skin. If I haven't, I'm going to become 
you know muscle or whatever you know whatever it's going to be so i think i think that's what that that's that that's what happens i suppose and the bottom line is though that you if if you look at sort of a cell culture you'll see these cells interacting with each other and there'll be voltages between the cells and between the insides of the cells and the outside and that's so in your work you're able to somehow read uh this voltage pattern and, and that's what you're looking at in your research so right so so okay so let's get to let's get to the voltage stuff so if you ask the question you have a collection of cells and what what the, the the evolutionary pressure is for that collection of cells to be able to do a few things it has to uh you want it to have memory right and because that helps you get around in the world you want it to be able to measure large things in other words uh you wanted to um let's 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 start off with the idea that that every every cell is a homeostatic unit yeah and so so the homeostatic loop has three components you take a measurement of something let's say it's hunger level or ph or metabolics or something you take a measurement you compare it with the memory of of a set point meaning what should it be and then depending on that delta you take an action so those are the three points right there's 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 the measurement the memory and the action and and so you as a single cell you sort of whirl around in those um cybernetic little little circles managing your 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 internal uh, uh you know various aspects of the chemistry of, of your body right well, if you want to be more complex and, and do more interesting things, one architecture that would let you do that is if you could scale that goal-directed activity. And so this is the, there's, a, there's a paper that I wrote where I argued that the way to think about all intelligences, no matter what they're made of, biological, exobiological, artificial, synthetic, robotic, it doesn't matter. In order to think about all of these intelligences on the same playing field, the one thing they have in common, no matter what they're made of, no matter where they came from, evolved, designed, whatever, the one thing they all have in common is the ability to pursue goals. And the way you can classify them is by the scale of their goals. So if you're, if the biggest spatiotemporally, if the, and it actually, I, you know, you, when you draw this, it looks like a, it looks like a Minkowski cone, actually, when you, when you draw these things out, because you can collapse the space and, and you have to worry about like, how big are these goals? If you're, if the biggest goal you can work towards is maximizing your glucose level, you're probably a bacteria. If the biggest goal you can, you can work towards is the creation of a limb, then you're probably a collection of cells. You're not a single cell. Single cells can't count fingers. They don't know how big a hand is. They don't know what a hand is. But a collection of cells absolutely does. And we can talk about morphogenesis as a homeostatic process. And then if you're really an advanced creature, you, your goals might be something like world peace, or it might be something like getting off the planet in a hundred years or whatever it's going to be. So you're literally by the, by the scale of your goals, you can tell what the cognitive sophistication of the, of the subunit is. So what I think drives the increase of complexity in life is this idea that when you have those homeostatic loops, you can scale up the cognitive capacity of that creature by scaling those three things. It's, I, you, first, you want to scale, what do I measure? I don't really want to just measure my local uh, concentration of anything at, at a particular point. I want to be able to measure large things. Like I want to be able to think about whether my arm is the right size. And so you want to you want to share information with your neighbors so you can measure really big things. Then you want memory. I don't just want to remember what my uh, what the local gradient was 20 minutes ago, the way bacteria do. I want to remember patterns like I want to remember what a proper hand looks like, what a proper eye looks like. So then you need more computational capacity. You need a network of cells instead of one cell. I want to take action. I don't just want to act locally in one cell. I want to be able to act large, large scale, like, for example, bend the whole tissue into a sheet or have traction forces that make tubes or, or whatever. Right? So 
now, so now what we're saying is that evolution is basically looking for a system that can scale all that up. And if it's not sounding like the brain yet, uh, it, it should be because these are right. This is exactly the kind of stuff that neural, uh, neural uh, networks do in the brain. They integrate information so that you can store large memories that belong to the system, not to any individual cell. You can you can integrate measurements across large distances, so so not just local, but you can integrate different senses and everything else. And you can you and, and, and all of this allows you to have goals that are fairly grandiose. They don't belong to any individual cell. Where did the brain learn this trick, right? The brain learned this from evolution, discovered this kind of thing around the time of bacterial biofilms. It's incredibly ancient. Around the time of bacteria, it already figured out that that um, electrical networks are a great way to store memories, to, to process information, and to make larger uh, uh, cybernetic constructs that, that whose goals scale higher and higher. So that's why we're interested in bioelectrics, not, not, not because it's, it's, it's magical um, in, in some way, just because it is an amazing system for scaling cognition. That's why I'm interested in it. And not to say that some at some point we won't discover some other creature out in a you know in a in a cosmic cloud somewhere that you know that operates in a completely different way. But here on Earth, bioelectricity is what evolution uses to scale intelligence. I like the the image because I guess you can also scale that up and talk about societies. And yeah. does it go back in? The, does the continuum go? How far does it go back in the other direction you know, to atoms? <laughs> that's a great. That's a great question. Uh, bioelectricity itself may not go too far down, although even organelles inside of cells have their own electrical potentials. So, you know, the nucleus, the, the Golgi, the ER, all those things have electrical potentials, certainly the mitochondria. But, but aside from that, the, the kind of the deeper question is, if, if we think that cognition scales, is there a zero? How far down does it go? And we just had, in fact, just an hour ago, I was part of a, a, a live stream with, with, um, some folks, including uh, Chris Chris Fields and uh, um, and, uh, and 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 other people, that uh, we were we were really really talking with Carl Friston and some others, and we were really talking about this issue of that we we have a model. Both Carl has a model and, and Chris has a model, and they're and they're compatible about basically all the way. And and, and I'm not gonna I'm, I'm gonna butcher the physics. So I'm not even gonna try, but I do encourage you to have Carl and, and and Chris on to talk about this. But but the bottom line is that. There's a way to look at all this stuff to um, basically turn the whole thing on its head and to say that physical objects that that don't have any cognition are extremely rare. That basically the 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 the, the common situation is not zero. It's it's very it's a low level. It's very basal. And but what biology does is scale the hell out of it and into familiar things that we see. But but I'm not sure. I, yeah, I, I don't believe that there's in in this world anyway. I don't believe that there's much of a zero. I think, um, and you and you can and you can tell because even even uh, if you ask yourself, okay, what does well, you have to do two things. First of all, you have to assume that all these things we're talking about cognition, intelligence, uh, sentience, whatever we're talking about, it's not binary, right? I think the biggest problems come and all kinds of uh, unsolvable pseudo problems come when people say it's binary. It's either, you know, you're either just physics. I mean, I hate that phrase, but people say it's just physics. And then some people say, and, and then they say, well, this thing is, of course, truly, you know, cognitive, and they mean themselves and maybe some some apes and maybe some dolphins. And so then that, that is, and we can talk about that if you want, that, that that's a completely uh, dead end way to think about it uh, for, for reasons of biology. But um, if once you once you under once you accept that, that it's a that it's a continuum, uh, then you can ask yourself, what is the most basic 
what is the absolute most basic version of some kind of cognition? Like, what is the what is the very end of that spectrum should look like? And and one of the things that that has to be there is some degree of goal directedness. And again, not to not to you know dive into the to, to the physics too much, which again, you know I, I don't fully uh, I don't fully own anyway. But the one can easily look at least action principles as a way to say that this is the most basic form of cognition. And of course, people are going to say, well, look, uh, you know, it's a rock, it falls down the gravity. Well, that's not advanced cognition, right? It's not advanced cognition. You have to be clear. <laughs> Nobody's claiming that, that rocks have hopes and dreams like we do about getting down to the bottom of an energy well. But you have to ask yourself, well, what does the most basic version of my goal-directed activity and also my goldfish's electric activity, um, goal-directed activity, and also a thermostat's goal-directed activity, what does the most basic version of that look like? And I think if you had to formulate what the simplest, you know, sort of, sort of a minimal version of that, it would look exactly like least action loss. So, so what's the minimizing principle then that takes you from, you know, what is it that drives towards intelligence and more complex? Uh, what, what is that um, mechanism? I think I think it's I think it's surprise minimization. I think it's all about prediction error. I think in the Firstonian sense, uh, I think I think it's about uh, systems that, and this is what life does. Life couples metabolism with information processing. It makes sense because you information processing is costly. You have to pay for it, and what you end up with are systems that persist, meaning that they can continue to operate as coherent systems to the extent that they can make uh, uh, better than, than average guesses about what's going to happen next. And I think, I think it's all about, uh, it's all about uh, prediction. And as soon as you have, see, I, I don't have a story about the origin of life, right? So I don't work on that. Lots of other people do. Um, I, I, don't have, I don't have a story about that. But my, my story begins the minute you have the most minimal basic system that is able to do homeostasis. It, it, it's not a full cell. It's a, you know, it's going to be an extremely simple thing, but it's able to do homeostasis. It survives because when environment changes, it takes actions to get back into the Goldilocks zone of whatever, whatever it's doing, right? Probably some simple chemical reaction. And as soon as you have that, the race is on after that, because now the more complexities you pile onto that. So how far back can I remember? How far forward can I anticipate? How complex of a pattern can I, can I hold on to? What is, um, what what's my ability to uh, avoid local maxima and navigate that space a little more competently than just roll down you know roll down the local uh, the local hill uh, as soon as all of those things become become drives that 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 propel intelligence so so once you've once you understand this sort of emergence these emer emergent properties what does that allow you to do so so what are you able to do now in the lab that you know, if I just had the idea that everything is DNA and that's just how I view things, what can you do experimentally in, in terms of applications that someone who has sort of just the DNA <laughs> old view can't yeah. do? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I, I spent uh, lots of time on this issue because my, um, my view on this and, and the, the paper has actually just came out this morning, um, this, this uh, giant uh, thing. Uh, I call it TAME, T-A-M-E, Technological Approach to Mind Everywhere. And the reason that I emphasize the first word is technological, because I don't want these things to be philosophy. These things, to, to the, whatever extent they're useful, they have to drive new research. They have to suggest experiments that you wouldn't have otherwise done. And, and this has been, this has paid off great for us. I mean, we've done tons of things that have never been done before, precisely because 
we have this weird, weird outlook on things. So I'll, I'll, I'll run some of these things down for you. But the, the fundamental, like one fundamental class of all these things has to do with level of control. So if you think about it, and neuroscience is really good about this because neuroscience, every, every, people who work in neuroscience, most of them anyway, have an understanding that there are multiple valid levels. So you might be working on uh, the shape of a, of a neurotransmitter receptor, or you might be working on plasticity in a, uh, in a neural circuit, or you might be working on pattern memory and, and you know, edge detection in the retina, or you might be working as a psychiatrist and you might be uh, dealing with people's uh, anxieties about uh, you know, how they view themselves in society, right? So, so there, are, there are levels of attack and certain problems are better handled by fixing a certain receptor in their, you know, in a, in a synapse those are those kind of approaches are unlikely to uh, to help someone who, for example, has a, a, existential doubts about the meaning of of life and you know doesn't know what to do with themselves. It it could be a chemical imbalance, but it often is a rational problem, not a chemical problem, right? And so the same exact thing is true in molecular biology. Many people in in the field, and in fact, the, the main um, paradigm nowadays in molecular medicine is considered to be reductionist. It's not really reductionist because if you say to people, well, then you probably want to talk about quantum foam. Well, they don't. They want to talk about biochemistry. So so, so it's not really reductionist, but they found a level that, that they appreciate. That's the chemical level. And the idea is that everything should be cashed out in these, in these chemical terms. The, the, the limitation of that is this. It's the same limitation of uh, taking the lowest level view in fields like neuroscience, like uh, computer science, uh, like like other other fields, you know, when we when we work with a computer, we don't try to manage it by by seeing by by controlling where the electrons go and shaping the uh, the, the 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 copper, right? You 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 operate, you write code at a higher level. You 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 treat this thing as a completely different type of device, and that allows you to do incredible things that, in theory, if you were you know Laplace's demon. Maybe you could pro maybe you could get everything done by pushing electrons around, but that's of course you're losing the you know you're losing the whole point of this thing, right? And similarly, um, if uh, you know if there was a if there was a chess game going on, sure you could take the approach that I'm just going to track where all the 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 atoms are, and I'm gonna I'm gonna right that's the level at which I'm gonna look at this. You could do that, but you would miss everything there is about what a game of chess actually is. You would know nothing about these various goals that go on, you know, protect the king, dominate the center, all this stuff that goes on. You would, you would be none the wiser about it. And, and by the way, you'd be here till the sun burns out trying to, trying to um, you know, f make predictions about what's actually going to happen next. The same thing happens in molecular biology. If you think that all of, uh, all of life basically has the agency of a wind-up clock, meaning that the body, the cells, the tissues, they don't have their, their age. I mean, people will say it's zero, but, but on my scheme, it would be something like, like, you know, minim, minimal, let's say, you know, some sort of simple machine. Then you've only got one way to make changes. That is, you're going to be uh, down at the level of the hardware, the way we used to program in the 40s and 50s, where you, you know, if you sat in front of a computer, you would have to be literally plugging wires in and out, right, to get it to do something. You, all of molecular medicine is about uh, the hardware. So genome editing, CRISPR, right, uh, uh, protein uh, design, um, pathways, rewiring pathways. The problem is that for, because, because uh, there's such a complex uh, piece of uh, physiological software that sits between the genome and the anatomy, 
it's incredibly difficult to know what to do at this lower level to fix system level problems. It's an inverse problem. It's a horrible inverse problem. It's a little bit like if you had, um, you know, if you've ever seen uh, the fractals, right? These really complex pictures, they come from a simple formula, right? You know, Z cubed minus seven Z plus I makes this incredible like thing. And you look at that and you go, wow, that's got three giant curly cues. You know what I want? I want four curly cues. What should my formula be? Good luck with that. Because, because that inverse problem is, uh, is incredibly hard. The same thing here. So if, if, you know, beyond kind of some low hanging fruit of, of, of single gene diseases and things like that, if you want a different hand or you want to repair a hand or you want to make an eye or something like this, what genes are you going to manipulate? How are you going to control all of the different, um, all the different cells that have to, that have to be involved? It's, it's incredibly um, difficult uh, to do all of this from the bottom up. Wouldn't it be nice if you could do the same thing that we do in neuroscience? Here's, what, here's how we do this in neuroscience. Um, 10,000 years ago, if you, were, uh, if you had a, a dog or some sort of farm animal and you wanted it to do something, we didn't know any neuroscience. You didn't have a prayer in hell of, of going in and, and manipulating all the ion, you know, all the neurons to get the thing to walk along and pull the plow and do everything, you know, everything it's supposed to do. It's possible, in theory, it's possible, but you, but you didn't have to do that. You trained it. Right. Yeah. And that's it. And it would do what you want. Now, why, why was that possible? That shortcut. That's an amazing shortcut. Why is that possible? It's possible because you recognize that what you're dealing with is not a wind up clock. It's got a, a certain level of agency where it actually has, is actually, um, has preferences, which means you can use rewards and punishments and that it has memory and it has certain goals that it's trying to meet. And now you manipulate that, which is a much easier space to deal with. And you don't need to know what's between its ears really to do that. I mean, it helps in some cases, but you don't really need to. So, so here's so here's what we do in 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 uh, in in, bi in biology and, and biomedicine. We say we we start with the assumption that you cannot just by sitting in your armchair you cannot assume that all of these things these these embryos organs tissues you can't sit there and assume that they are like the wind up clocks. You can't make that assumption. You need to do experiments. You need to do experiments, which means trying different engineering strategies that target higher levels. Some of those will fail and then you might conclude that well maybe those levels aren't there okay and some of them will succeed and you'll say ah i've discovered that actually there is a perspective on the system that uh takes advantage of the agency so i'll just give you some some simple simple examples here's one example um you have a flatworm you have a flatworm a planarian and flatworms typically have one head and one tail and when you the the amazing thing about well, one of many amazing things about these flatworms is that they regenerate and so if you cut them into pieces every piece regrows exactly what's missing and you get lots of perfect little worms in fact they're immortal they because of that they they don't they don't age they don't have a lifespan limit so um yeah amazing so so okay so you got this flatworm you, you cut off the head and the tail you've got this middle fragment and then you ask the question okay how does the system know what to what to grow and and more and more importantly how does it know when to stop because the amazing thing about it is the cells grow really rapidly at the wound site. They start to grow, they grow, they, they, they move around, they change, you know, they change uh, uh, gene expression, they do all this stuff. And then they make a perfect little head and tail, and then they stop, then the whole thing stops. And so now why does it stop? Well, nobody, no, no, you know, in the original um, kind of paradigm, we actually had no idea how they stop. And if you're a computer scientist, you said, well, there's a representation. It's, it's, a, it's a, um, a means ends analysis. It basically, it's got a target pattern that it's trying to hit and then it measures the error. And when, it's, when the error is acceptably low, then it stops, right? Now, that's, that's something that uh, biologists hate that kind of model because that that kind of model sounds like uh, that goal directedness sounds scary. It sounds like somebody is positing some sort of high level cognition here. And 
when, and, and which of course isn't true, you don't need to, ever since the 40s, we've had cybernetics has given us a science of simple machines that have goals. We don't, there's, you don't need magic anymore. You don't have to be a, like a, like an advanced metacognitive, uh, you know, kind of uh, self-reflective uh, human to, to have goals. Your thermostat has goals, right? That, that, you know, it's no longer magical. But um, what biology likes in general is feed forward emergence. So what it likes is to discover simple rules and when every all the agents in parallel exit it's kind of like your bird example when they when they execute those rules out comes something amazing so in embryonic development what they would say is the dna dry um, it's basically a cellular automaton system the the dna determines the local rules all the cells execute the rules and the rules are such that eventually you turn that crank long enough that by emergence you get this frog or fish or whatever whatever you get that's that's fine but that doesn't work very well, uh, and, and we can go through some examples, which, which I, I always you know, sort of show off in my talks. There are some amazing examples that show that it isn't just a feed-forward process. If you try to intervene, and there's some amazing things you can do to intervene that the system basically takes care of, you start to realize that uh, you can't get there with a, with a simple feed-forward scheme. There's got to be these goal-directed feedbacks. It's very clear that, that there are these homeostatic laws. Now, what's interesting is the homeostasis isn't for simple scalars like, like pressure or pH or, or metabolic or whatever. The, the set point for that homeostatic process is some sort of shape. It's a coarse grain description of like, you're supposed to have five fingers and, and we're gonna keep regrowing them. If you don't have five, we're gonna keep regrowing, like that kind of thing. So, so, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty uh, un, uh, unwelcome model for the standard by, uh, you know, it's kind of biological uh, perspective. Uh, but it, but the prediction the standard view makes is that the changes you should be able to make are changes that you have to be able to figure out how the mapping from the genes to the anatomy works, and you have to make changes to the genome, and then the anatomy will follow. That's 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 the only thing open to you on the basis of this uh, the standard way of looking at it. So we said, okay, let's take seriously this idea that it actually is a, a homeostatic process, which means it represents its target state. And, and you might, you know, and then, and then the natural question is, you're telling me this thing remembers what it's supposed to look like? That's, you know, that's too advanced. I'm saying it doesn't know that it remembers. It's not a human level of, of cognition, but like your thermostat, it has a biophysical encoding of the correct state. And then this thing is, well, once you've said something like that, well, you've got to find it. So now, so now here, here we go. If you, if you believe that something is a thermostat, you have to do a couple of things. You have to be able to uh, figure out where and how the representation is stored. You have to learn to decode it. So what physical properties of the representation map onto whatever you're trying to control, so size and shape. And then you have to learn to rewrite it. So what we basically, and, and, so, and so to look at all of these things, we, we said, okay, how are these things going to be stored? And there might be many different systems. We just, we just deal with the one. Uh, we said, well, let's take some, uh, I mean, this was my, my, my kind of idea for, 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 for a long, really long time. If you, the one positive uh, control that we have, the one example where this definitely works uncontroversially is in the brain. We know we have goals. We know we can minimize error. Uh, you know, we, 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 all, we all have that experience. So brains can do this. How do brains do it? Well, they do it via electrical networks. And did brains invent electrical networks? No, they've been around forever. So what if, what if uh, the ancient system was tissue storing uh, a pattern memories of what they're supposed to be? And what the brain did was simply pivot that whole system from solving problems in morphospace, right, in anatomical configuration space into behavioral space. So when, when muscles and brains showed up, it turned out that, you know what, we can take all those same tricks that the collective intelligence of the body used to solve patterning problems, 
and we can just use them to move the body through three-dimensional space and we can run around and you know chase each other and, and so on so uh so that's so that's what we said and we and and we started we developed the first tools to read and write the basically what 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 neuroscientists do in neural decoding to, to start to read the electrical signals now by electrical signals outside the brain a little bit different they're not spiking they're slow and they're more spatially um distributed than they are temporally it's not a spike coding as far as we know so we developed these voltage sensitive fluorescent dyes that allowed us to look at these voltage patterns and we were able to see that wow uh before all the genes turn on to do things like determine uh downstream uh, size and shape and how many heads and where your eyes go where your limbs go before all that genetic activity there was an electric circuit that made those decisions and uh and stored the electrical pattern corresponding to what's going to happen next could I stop you just for a second? You're talking about looking at an embryo, right? So you're looking, you've died an embryo, and then you're looking at patterns emerging before the de development of the animal. Correct. Is this, is this circumstance? Correct. Although it doesn't have to be an embryo. It could be an adult. You know, the flatworms are adults. When you cut them, um, you could look at adult regeneration uh, context. So you take a, uh, you take a frog and, uh, you know, and, and amputate one of the legs, and you can look at the electrical signals that are going to be guiding what happens next. So it doesn't have to be an embryo, but it's a whole animal. We develop those tools where you don't have to uh, electrophysiologically impale every cell. You can just look at the whole thing and we have videos you know time-lapse videos are very beautiful of all this of all this electrical activity but but so um you can you can go in and you can hijack these signals right and then you so you can get for example two-headed flatworms and all sorts of different weird and wonderful uh, creatures so, so in practice how do you do that hijacking so you have dyes to see what this electrical patterning uh, inside an embryo or some other creature look like but how, how do you in practice make that change do you do you put a voltage across the animal or do you immerse it in some chemical or what what's what do you do yeah um so so the first step is to know what are you trying to do because you have to decode the pattern a little bit because you have to decide what do i want so if I look at where there's this pattern that's called the electric face, and it basically shows you where the eyes, the jaws, where everything is going to go, the mouth, where everything is going to go, right? And you say, okay, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to have an eye on the gut instead of in the, or in addition to the one in the face. And so you see this electrical pattern that's responsible for starting an eye, and you say, I would like to uh, reproduce that somewhere else, let's say on the back of the animal. And you can't do it by applying electrical fields, although for hundreds of years, actually, now people have done certain things with applied electrical fields, but nothing like, like what we've done, because electrodes are just not a great way to make complex standing resting potential gradients. They're just not a great tool for that. So you can't use, there are no waves, there are no magnetics, there's no um, applied electrical fields, it's nothing like that. What you do is exactly, what you do is you steal all of the tools from neuroscience. And the cool thing is, which tells you something interesting, that the tools of neuroscience do not distinguish at all between neural and non-neural cells. With a, any distinction we make is all in our heads. We, we come up with that. The tools, the tools can't tell the difference. So we do all the things that neuroscientists do, So which, which means um, we can, in order to change that bioelectrical pattern, you can uh, open and close channels. And you can do that with drugs, so pharmacology. You can do it with light. If you have optogenetic channels, you can do it with light masks. So you can express channel rhodopsin in your in your cells, and then put, and then lay down a light mask to turn some of them on and off. Right? We can control the topology of the network by controlling the the gap junctions, the electrical synapses between cells. So we can open them, we can close them. Same deal. We can do it with drugs. We can mutate the the connexin proteins. We can put in new channels, new proteins, uh, new connexin proteins. It's all about 
targeting the native system that the cells are using to establish whatever pattern they have. And, you, and, and what we do is we develop computational models that try to tell us what, to, what bioelectric stimulus to provide, meaning which channels to open or close to get a particular outcome. So we've made, okay, so, so you know, we can control the number of heads on the flatworm. We've shown that actually that uh, not, without touching, the, all of this is without touching the genomes. We never edit the genome. So there's a stock hardware, absolutely wild type stock hardware. And, we, and, and by manipulating the electrical software, what you can do is you can get it to uh, permanently, for example, become two-headed, meaning in the future, if you keep cutting it, they'll still be two-headed. And so the question of what determines the number of heads in the planarian is really tricky. People will say DNA, not quite. What the DNA makes is a machine that by default defaults to an electrical pattern that says one head, but doesn't have to. You can change that and you can do other things. We've, um, we've, we've induced eyes, you know, in other places of the animal. We've caused uh, animals that don't regenerate their limbs to regenerate their limbs. We've normalized tumors. We've corrected very complex uh, birth defects of the brain. And all of this can be done, not because we know how to micromanage the construction of all these organs. We don't. It's because we found a high level um, set, of, uh, set of hooks into the native physiological software, literally subroutine calls, where we can say the, the bioelectric pattern we put in by misexpressing some ion channel in the tail says build a tail here. Downstream of that signal, everything else will turn on. All the genes that everybody knows, you know, the master eye genes that will build a tail, all that stuff, everything will get turned on. But the decision is made by an electrical circuit that says, well, where do we put the eye? And you can say, well, here, this is where you put the eye. But then, so what's the difference between what's the difference between the two-headed and the three and four and so on? What, what what is the change that you make there if it's subtle? The change the change is uh, there's a there's a bioelectric pattern that you can see that encodes what the outcome is going to be. It's a little bit like think about what happens in the brain. In the brain, when when you do neural decoding, you take a reading of the brain activity and you run it through some sort of deconvolution software. And you say, ah, that person is thinking about a picture of a gorilla, not a picture of a, you know, a chair, right? You, there's a mapping between the electrical. Now, the mapping is really complicated. It's not straightforward. You don't, you don't open up the person's head and actually see pictures of, of, of chairs and things. Although in terms of navigating mazes, you can find, you know, sort of, sort of place cells and things like that. But um, there's a mapping, and we call this cracking the bioelectric code exactly the way the neuroscientists are tracking to, trying to crack the, the neural um, uh, encoding. There's a mapping between what the pattern is and what's going to happen. And we, we now know what that is in four or five cases. So we certainly haven't cracked it in general. That's, uh, you know, the, the biggest area of, of research right now. But we know in a few cases what to look for and how to make specific changes. If you want to move the eyes, the mouth, the heart, the limbs, the brain, uh, we, can, we know how to do that now. Okay, so it's not that you have sort of like an equation and you know all the stable solutions of that equation. It's just through trial and error, you have been able to create certain stable configurations of these flatworms. Can I, can I ask? Sorry, it was uh, well, just, well, just, to, just to, to, to comment on that. It's not trial and error. So when we started, now this was 20 years ago, when we started, it was very much um, a, a screening process where we would have to map that whole, we, we didn't have the equation, so we had to map the whole space. So we would just do, we would, we would, put tissue in different bioelectrical pattern states and see what happens. We started to map out the space. Now, for a number of these cases, we actually have the equations. So we know, so for example, when we fix brain defects in tadpoles, that's because we have an actual equation that describes the, electric, the, the electrical distribution in the brain. 
and we can ask that model questions like, hey, if it's if if there's a birth defect incipient, meaning that if it's if the system has been exposed to alcohol, nicotine, uh, you know, some sort of mutate like notch mutations, whatever, and the pattern's wrong, you can actually you can actually say to the model, what would it take to knock us back into the correct attractor? And and right, so 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 it's 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 important to understand that this is no longer. I mean, in, in new systems that we haven't done this for, it, it is a little bit of poking around, but, but this is not a random search by any means. We, we have a simulator, right? We have a bioelectric simulator that will tell you what the stable points are. And uh, for at least for some, you know, for, for, for some uh, model systems. So when you talk about stable points, one thing that I was curious about is, okay, so, so when I was looking at some of the work you were doing, you, you take what you call these Picasso tadpoles. So you, you edit these tadpoles so that the eyes are all over the place and the mouth and all, all the different uh, features of the face are in, in places where they shouldn't be. And as the tadpole develops, those eyes and, and those features go back to where they should be. Whereas you have this other case of the planarium, where, so you have these two-headed worms, you can, uh, you know, alter the bioelectric, um, let's say, mapping or, or blueprint so that when you cut them in half, they form two-headed worms. And th that's stable through the generations. You'll get generation after generation after generation, um, you know, the two-headed worms. My question is, why was it the case with the Picasso tadpole that you went back to what you expect, you know, what you should have, whereas the changes you make to the planarian worm uh, are stable. Do, do you understand the difference between, you know, why one solution is a stable attractor and why the others are not? Yeah, there, there, there are lots of open questions there, so we don't understand everything about it, but I can tell you uh, what we do understand. Um, the thing, the thing about the tadpole is that uh, when it fixes itself, it's undergoing metamorphosis. It's going from a tadpole to a frog. And so I think what happens there is that the pattern the, the the target morphology basically gets reset at a by the creature at a certain because because if it didn't get reset you would never become a frog you would stay you would achieve error zero of a tadpole and you would just sit there which actually we can do I mean we can do that too but 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 if you but if you don't do that and you get these monstrous tadpoles that are that are just huge and they never become frogs but um but if you don't do that I think what happens is and this is the part we don't understand all the way uh at a certain point in development, the target morphology gets rewritten by a new one that basically, it's a regenerative process. It basically turns on the remodeling that says, uh, you're completely wrong, that you're not what a frog looks like. And, and oh man, now I, gotta, now, now I gotta reduce error again and everything starts moving around. And, and the, the cool thing about that is once you've reset the set point, it doesn't matter where you're starting from, right? When, you, when, when your thermostat needs to go to 70, it doesn't matter if it's going up or going down, it knows how to get to the set point from wherever. And it'll keep doing it, right? That's the beauty of the system. So that's what happens when you can scramble it. But when when the the the, the new target morphology comes along, it says, "Well, I don't care what you were before." In fact, the interesting thing is that compared to that new target morphology, the tadpole, the normal tadpole, is just as wrong. No, no, nobody cares, right? You know, if your eye was this far back or that far back, the point is it's not right for a frog. So everything has to start. Everything starts to try to minimize that error. So so that all gets re reshuffled. The planarian works on a slightly different principle, which is that uh, if the anatomy matches what the bioelectric uh, pattern is, then life is good. There's nothing to change into. It's all good. And, and then it just it, it's got this amazing property of it's not, Well, it, actually, there's another twist to this. So, so it's got this amazing uh, ability to you change the pattern. It keeps it just it just holds on to it. And that's it. Now, now, here's another thing you can do with planaria, you know, talking about these stable points. 
I can I can take, and this was, this was actually an undergrad in my lab who discovered this. You actually take a planarian with a um, uh, with a particular shape head, let's say a triangular head. You cut off the head, you cut off the tail, you take that middle fragment, and you put it in uh, a solution of gap junction blockers. So you basically uh, you basically decouple all the cells from each other, and you do that for about forty eight hours. So all the so the bioelectric pattern goes you know goes all to heck. It gets all balkanized where where like there's no big um, uh, regions of anything anymore because all the cells are are disconnected from each other. Right? So um, uh, so you do that, and then you pull then you pull them out of the drug, and you let them go back to normal, and and the electric circuit finds its 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 states again. And the amazing thing is that it it doesn't always find the correct one. In fact, about 8% of the time, it finds the correct one and it makes the right triangular head. Guess what it does the other percent of the time? It makes, it grows heads belonging to other species of worms. Same genome, nothing wrong with the hardware. You know, the genome is completely normal, except that the electric circuit got knocked into a completely different stable point. Uh, and then they make you know, the, the head shapes, the brain shapes, the distribution of stem cells become like other species between 100 and 150 million years evolutionary distance with the same genome. So that tells you many things. It tells you that actually the hardware is capable of, uh, you know, by default, it always finds that it's very, very reliable. It always finds the right attractor, but we've learned to perturb it. And then it finds other attractors in the state space of that circuit that evolution happens to be using for other species at, at the moment. Now, one interesting thing about this, which we do not understand yet at all, is that you, you make one of these planarians in about eight uh, days, it makes a head of the wrong species, and then it finishes growth and then it sits there sits there for about three to four weeks being this other species and then three to four weeks something bizarre kicks in that we do not understand and it goes back to normal and then remodels back to back to a triangular shape so in that respect it is a little bit like the frog but 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 the difference is in planaria we don't know you know in the frogs we know what it is metamorphosis turns on in the planaria we don't know what that is we don't know why what process takes three weeks? I, you know, it's got to have a clock, right? It's got to have some clock that's something is measuring these three weeks. I have no idea what can measure three weeks in the tissue. So, so for some reason, it sits there perfectly happy. We know it's it's the tissue is happy because because they stop remodeling when they make these other heads and then everything stops. But but for some reason, three weeks later, it suddenly realizes that oh man, this is the wrong attractor, and it goes back to and it goes back to normal. We don't understand why that happens. How many times have you done this? Like, is it always exactly, is it always within a day or how, how precise are you there? Um, no, no, it's, it's not within a day. It's, uh, you know, when you do it to a cohort of animals, they sort of, it, it, it's hard to say exactly because all the changes are smooth. So you just know that it's been sitting at this perfect head and all of a sudden, you know, 30 days later, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's, a, that's a rounding out again. And uh, it's, you know, but, but they, no, they're not precise. They all, they all kind of start doing it plus or minus. I don't know, within a few days of each other or something like that. It makes me wonder how far you can push this. So for example, yeah. imagine you could read the, um, the blueprint for say a rat yep. and then you superimpose that over a human embryo. Yep. Could you, could you get a, a rat completely made of human cells? I, I, I don't see why not. I see no reason why not. If we knew what we were doing, I see zero reason why not. People will say, you know, oh, there's developmental constraints. And I mean, I can think of a few things. So for example, if, if it, you know, if the rat has some sort of weird protein, uh, you know, in its whiskers that's structural for something and that humans just don't have that, okay, the no amount of bioelectrics is going to help you. If you don't have, or maybe some enzyme, I mean, I have no idea, but if rats have some sort of weird enzyme that humans don't have, um, if, if that's not going to appear from this process. But morphologically, 
I, I'm a firm believer, and and this is you know people say this is this is science fiction, but I don't see why this is not possible. I think uh, the the end game of this whole business someday uh, some some you know future version of us is going to be able to uh, have a uh, an anatomical compiler. We're going to be able to sit down in front of a computer, draw whatever living thing you want. I don't care if it looks like something you've seen before, or you've never seen before. It, you know, a, a six-legged frog with a with a you know a propeller on its back. You can draw whatever whatever is biologically you know even possible. You should draw it, and then if we knew what we were doing, the the the, the anatomical compiler would uh, give you a set of stimuli that you would have to give to some kind of cells, and they can be probably a wide range of cells to build whatever it is that you just drew. So that kind of complete control, I I think it should I think it's possible. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it should be possible. I mean, there'll be constraints. There'll be some things, that, you know, like 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 special proteins and enzymes and things. But overall, it should be it should be possible. So I guess the big important question to ask following that is uh, the sensible question is: if you killed that rat, would it be murder? Well, let's talk about okay. So so that 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 gets into an uh, to an interesting uh, uh, area, which is uh, something that. Um, uh, something that i've been i've been actually working on which is this idea of just trying to break down a lot of these uh barriers you know we, we, that, that that surround various definitions so so we 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 throw around a lot of words organism machine um uh, uh you know human whatever we, th we throw around these words and obviously in the purpose of for the purposes of the legal system you have to pretend that they're firm the way we do with the word adult right we have this we have this definition of an adult there's no such thing as an adult. Nothing happens on your 18th birthday that makes you a different creature than you were the day before. It's all nonsense. But 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 for the but for the purposes of of get, you know moving on with with life, we have we kind of pretend that that's real. Uh, but realistically, what we have to think about the biology is telling us that all of these categories are extremely soft. So whatever you are as a human, and people say say all the time, the the human brain is unique. It does this. And just start walking backwards. Okay, human brain. What is what is that? How about a hundred thousand years ago? Five hundred thousand years ago? How about before that? Where where are you gonna you know Are you gonna say are you gonna be able to draw some a line a sharp line where you say I saw some parents. Those parents were not you know cognitive self responsible whatever it, you and they have an offspring. Bamo that that offspring now has it. The parents didn't have it. The offspring has it. I've got a line. There's no such that's completely implausible, right? That 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 never happened. And the same thing that you can't the same thing in embryonic development. If you say I am a cognitive uh, being, a single cell, that's just a biochemical system. Well, guess what? You used to be a single cell. We all took that journey across the Cartesian cut. We all started life as one cell, smoothly, slowly, you know, step by step, you became the system that now makes claims about how special you are. Where, you know, where do you think that happened? It's completely implausible to think that there's something sharp and amazing that happens to you, you know. On a... So having said all that, uh, that means now, we really need to understand when we use these terms, what's essential, right? What's, when somebody says uh, a human, what, what, it, what is really a human? Is it, is it the cells they're made of? I don't think so. You could go out and this is, you know, science fiction has, has done this uh, to death, this idea. You could go off and, and you, could, you could have a bunch of your organs replaced and you could, have, you could have all kinds of things replaced. You could have no trace of initial human DNA in your body as long as, you know, does, is that what makes you stop being human for the purposes of what's murder and what's not? I don't think so. So, so going back to, right, so we have to start thinking about all of the, you know, and I call this, um, this the space of possible beings, right? Every combination of, of designed, evolved, and software components is some sort of creature. 
we have we have people now that have implants that drive wheelchairs, right? And so, uh, you know, with their mind, they control the wheelchair, right? So that's, you know, you're 99% human, 1%, you've got some smart chip that does something embedded in your brain. We also have hybrids, which are brain cells driving little robots. So you might have a vacuum cleaner that's got some human cells embedded on it that helps to drive around. That's 99% uh, robot, 1%, um, you know, 1% human. You can make every combination in between every combination and there's no magic now for the there's no magical percent well at 72 percent now you got a human completely implausible so so that means that we are going to be surrounded by cyborgs hybrids uh synthetic you know augmented humans transhumans you know you have all this stuff uh you know the transhumanist movement you know you're gonna have senses that the rest of us don't have you're gonna be plugged into you know you'll have a you'll have an implant that that gives you Somebody will have a direct uh, sensory input to the stock market. Somebody else it will be to the, you know, the solar winds because they want to feel how the solar corona is doing. We're going to all live in these, you know, novel worlds. And for the purposes of what's murder and what's not, we're going to have to have a definition of what do we really mean when we say human that has nothing to do with what you're made of or how you got here, evolved, designed, you know, wherever, what your parts are. We got we got to do better than that, and so and and I mean if, you know, we could talk about that what 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 I think that is, but uh, it isn't going to be based on what your genetics are, what your cells are. All of that is swappable, you know, and and it is being swapped, you know, rapidly. I think people are going to fight about this, though. It's going to be another spectrum that people are not so happy about. Oh, I mean, compared to listen, compared to uh, you know, Darwin Darwin uh, gave us this uh, this amazing idea that. Uh, there is a continuum, a smooth continuum, where you cannot distinguish humans from animals. That's what Darwin claimed, right? Because before that, you had the Garden of Eden, and I, I, in my talk, I have a, I have a painting of Adam naming the animals in the Garden of Eden. It's, it's very convenient because you have firm categories. You have a human, and then you have some sheep and some other stuff, and you can say by looking at them and by knowing where, where you know what kind of animal they are you can say exactly what it's capable of you can say what uh, you can make claims about what our ethical obligation to it is all that kind of stuff darwin said no 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 there there isn't uh, there isn't that sharp distinction there's a smooth gradient right what's coming is going to make that and, and and we know and you know and we know what what an upheaval that was at the time you know people people I mean, people still are going crazy over it uh what's actually coming is going to make all of that seem like just a walk in the park because it's not one dimension that you can say, you know, have you gotten up to human level from whatever? Oh no, it's going to be a massive multi-dimensional space where every animal and 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 um, you've ever seen is a tiny corner of that space, and you're gonna find you're gonna we're gonna have to figure out ways to relate to things that have looked nothing like what what you've ever seen, and 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 yeah, and 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 we're not we're not good at even being nice to you know within group uh you, you know con specifics that that are like you so so figuring out how to how to relate to that is going to be a, a real challenge for society on the other hand this might force us to become good at this you know just to yeah. survive hopefully the one thing that i one thing that i just um my voice just went <laughs> one thing that i um you made me think of is uh, convergent evolution. So it might be the case that there are only so many configurations. I mean, you paint this picture where there's this, um, you know, infinite uh, plane of configurations, but maybe uh, if you have things that look like cells, they make things that look like dogs and cats and crabs and birds. And maybe, maybe your work somehow explains why we do get uh, convergent e evolution for completely uh, separate species. I mean, that's true. There are there are attractors in many ways to get there. 
but um, I don't think that that, that that you can enumerate that way the space of possibilities because the space itself is uncountably large and 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 has dimensions we can't even imagine. I mean, here, here's a. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna sketch a possible being for you. Okay, let's just we have a we have a schema. The schema is you have a brain, you have a body, and you have an environment. We're going to stick with that. We're going to stay. I'm not even going to break that. We're going to let's let's just stick with that, right? So you have some sort of brain controller. It controls a body, and there's an environment that gives inputs to the brain through some senses, and uh, and then and then it acts in the environment. Okay, so we're going to that, that's a familiar that's a nice familiar schema for for creatures. Let's let's twist all the knobs here. Let's let's look at the symmetries of this thing. For a brain, I'm going to say, uh, here's what we're going to build. We're going to have uh, we're going to have a human brain, but I'd like, but but I'm going to have three hemispheres. And in fact, uh, I'm going to attach a whole bunch of uh, insect cells to it, like like a massive amount, you know, a huge a huge amount of insect cells. And and this has been done. So human uh, so insect brain cells live perfectly well with with human brain cells. We will, yeah. You know, somebody's in, in fact has done it with human um, patients, epilepsy patients, in, implant. Why doesn't the body attack those cells as being foreign? Uh, as is, far, is it something special about the brain? As far as I as far as I understand, that's why the brain has some some immune privilege. But but let's say in the system that we're building, there's not going to be an immune system. We'll just make it nice and simple where there's no immune system. So so we got so so you've got your brain. I've got you know I've got three hemispheres of of, of human tissue. I've got a bunch of um, uh, I've got a bunch of insect cells. That's that's the input. Uh, that's the that's the brain rather now. Um, it, and, and this whole thing is sort of floating in a vat, uh, you know, and, and what's the body? Well, here's the, here's the body. Imagine an arena. Uh, in the arena, there are a bunch of robots. It's not one robot. There are a bunch. It's a swarm. There are a bunch of robots. All these robots uh, have, have the ability to, to move around. They're getting, where are they getting their signals from? They're getting their signals from a transmitter that, re, that gets electrical readings from this crazy brain I just described to you. So, so the output, instead of controlling muscles, the brain sends electrical signals, and on the other end, instead of a muscle like you would have in a normal animal, you have a little transmitter, and the transmitter transmits signals to the robotic swarm. So now instead of moving uh, thousands of, I have no idea how many there are, you know, millions of, of muscle fibers in your body, you're moving a robotic swarm. Now, that's your body now, right? So, so you're a brain in a vat, and you're moving a body, as in all, the electrical, as in all of the um, kind of sci-fi stories, but your body is now a, a, a robotic swarm. Now... To the extent that uh, to the extent that the robots uh, are doing something uh, something useful, they what what happens is uh, let's let's think about the um, the sensory input. What's the sensory input to this brain to get it to to get it to, to to do something useful with these with these robots? The sensory input is this: there's a there's a crowd of people sitting around uh, this arena and they're watching the robots and they're tweeting about it and they're on social media and the the more amused they are by these robots. They, uh, they, they hit, they hit the, you know, they hit the thumbs up button and the, and, and the more thumbs up buttons you get, there's some glucose that gets dumped into the, into the tank for the brain and sort of feeds it. And, and maybe, maybe there's some endorphins and happy, you know, happy molecules and whatever, right? That's, that's the body. So now there's, there's zero reason to think that in short order, that, that construct wouldn't learn to do interesting things with its body to get more reward. Every living thing can be trained in that way. And so now you've got this agent that is about as alien as you can imagine, but you can tweak all of these components, right? And we will have things like this. Uh, and you can ask yourself, how do I relate to this? Because if the body's complex enough and the brain is complex enough, it might have very high level of intelligence. There's no reason to think that humans are the top of the food chain at some point. You know, we, we, we all know what a, um, 
uh, diminished capacity human is, right? You go to court and they say, well, he's got diminished capacity. You know, we can't blame him for because, you know, it doesn't have this, the, the, the IQ to know what he's doing. How about, how about expanded capacity? What happens when you start getting the first people that have uh, twice the moral capacity of a normal human? Like, wow, you should have really, you know, you have the capacity to have really uh, watched out for all of this stuff and, uh, you know, not had the consequences of whatever you did. A normal human couldn't be expected to do that, but you could have, you could have seen that coming because you've got way more IQ than the rest of us. What's your moral responsibility? So all of this, this, this space of massively different intelligences, different brains, different bodies living in different worlds with different capacities, all of this is coming. And, and I sure hope that, uh, that what we're going to learn from all this is that, you can't establish your uh, your ethical responsibilities based on what something looks like or how it got here. Uh, I suppose there you're describing a creature which wasn't uh, you didn't arrive at it through some evolutionary process, right? So it, it might be the case that your <clears throat> it might be the case that your um, solution space, you know, the minima you're able to access through evolution may be very different to the, and that's actually very exciting. I'd like to see this crazy creature at some point that you've uh, described. But um, can can I ask if if we if we backtrack a little bit to the planaria? Um, can I ask? So you said that one of the amazing things that you've noticed is that these, you know, these creatures, they, they heal, they, they develop, and then at some point they stop. Are you able to stop that? Are you able to grow like enormous planaria or are you able to like, uh, you know, hijack that process and stop it? Yeah, good question. Uh, size control is not one of the things that is easy that, that that we have found easy to control so we've we've gotten things to grow that normally don't grow so for example we've made frogs regenerate their legs frogs normally don't regen unlike salamanders frogs don't regenerate their legs so you amputate the leg that's the, you know that's it we've we've been able to induce frogs to regenerate their legs so in one sense that's an example of size control because you're getting something to grow that normally wouldn't we have not made gigantic planaria uh so, yeah, no, the size control seems to be uh, tougher to crack and we haven't, we haven't generally cracked it. You know, the eyes, we can make extra eyes on a tadpole. Those eyes are never bigger than normal eyes. They, you know, mm -hmm. at best they're the size of a normal eye. And so, yeah, uh, no, we haven't, we haven't made giant worms yet. I guess, I guess there's a hint, right? People who have a problem with their pituitary gland, I suppose they, you you end up with people who have ginormism or gigantism, sorry, and and uh, you have all sorts of. I suppose the the class of chemicals that you can use are already uh, sort of laid out because we see people with these different uh, anomalies. Let's say uh, people with sicknesses. Um, yeah. So so uh, you know you can we can we can jump downstream, and I I, f I feel like that's kind of. Um, we can we can certainly do that. That that's a little bit of, that's a little bit cheating. I mean, we we could certainly do that. We could certainly provide some sort of a growth hormone. You know, have a have a circuit that just provides more growth hormone, causes them to grow. I think that's a little bit of cheating. I, I'm not so interested in that per, per se. I want to go. I would like to go upstream and say, how do you decide what the size of a flatworm should be anyway? Like, what's the primary? What's the what's the way that the that, that the that the tissue decides what a correct size is? I'd like to know what that's about. And 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 uh, you know, to be honest, we have not we have not found that. We we haven't cracked it yet. 
So, so how precise can you be then? Are you able to, you said you, you can get an extra um, leg on a frog, for example. Can, can you differentiate, I suppose, do frogs have a difference between their forelegs and hind legs? Are you able to d differentiate that? There are, there are three types of uh, bioelectrical uh, triggers. There, there is the bioelectrical pattern that describes exactly what the tissue is going to look like. This is, for example, the electric face. It, has, it looks like a face. You can move around the components and it'll be whatever it is, right? So it's, a very, it's almost like a paint by numbers mode. There's another mode which is controls the organ. So I can say, build an eye here, build a brain, build a, you know, whatever, right? And there's another mode which says, even a higher level mode, which just says, build whatever normally goes here. Whatever, whatever it is, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You, you build whatever normally goes here. We don't yet have a great understanding of how to trigger those three different options whenever we want them. Okay, we're still, this is part of cracking that bioelectric code. We're still working that out, why it is that, this, that the bioelectrics works in these three different ways in three contexts. So in the case of the frog leg, the, the, the bad news is that all we know how to do is that third option where we just say, whatever normally grows here, that's what you grow. And, and it makes it like it doesn't make you know so that's the bad news we don't know how to how to you know grow a, a heart there or a, or a you know or a hind leg or something else and if it's supposed to be a four like the good news is for regenerative medicine it never it never makes a mistake it never makes something else it never makes a tumor it never you know it makes exactly what goes there which means that once you've found that high level control you don't need you can you can reach biomedically relevant um outcomes without having to uh, know everything there is to know about how to micromanage it. So that's the good news. So, so we're working to exploit that for, for, for medical purposes, but we don't always know why you get that effect versus being able to, to make specific organs elsewhere. There's, there's, there's something about the code that, well, there's many things about the code that we haven't cracked yet. Is there something special about frogs uh, then in your, you know, do you suspect that everything you're doing with frogs should be possible with mammals? Is there any reason why that wouldn't be the case? No, there's no reason why that wouldn't be the case. We use the frog because it's convenient, but, but we've, done, uh, we've done things in, in, in mammalian cells already. We're doing of, uh, mouse limb regeneration now, so we're, we're in the process of, of, of trying to get that to happen. Human, the, the reason you know that these things are well conserved is because of human channelopathies. So there are humans that have mutations in these ion channels that we work with, and the outcomes are exactly what we see in the in the other model systems. They have craniofacial defects. They have um, uh, heart, uh, limb, brain. They have the same kinds of defects. That, so, so you know these same systems are operating in these in these organs in in humans. When you get conjoined twins, is it ever the case that something along these lines has happened, or is it always two different? You know. Does this ever happen where someone grows an arm, a complete arm, and it's just this sort of a process at play? It's a good, it's a good question. Uh, in in the problem is that it's rare that you know what exactly happens. So sometimes you know, sometimes you'll have an embryo and some pieces that don't belong, and then you usually say, "Well, there used to be another twin, and it resorbed or something." Like you, you never quite know what actually happened. There is, there is a really interesting uh, mutation in mice, although we don't know what, I th nobody knows what's, what's actually involved. It could be an ion channel, that would be fantastic, but I don't know if that's the case. It's called uh, DS, disorganization. And these mice are really weird. Uh, 
it looks like a, it looks like a, every mouse takes a, a roll of the dice as far as what's going to happen. They're all different. And sometimes you just have a random leg sticking out of somewhere. You'll have random, various random organs in the wrong places. It, it just, it just looks like somebody scrambled it. And, and I would love nothing more than to, to know that that, uh, that that was some sort of a, a bioelectric perturbation, but it's not known actually what, what the issue there is. Do you suspect? It, it, do you suspect it's in the D DNA, or is there a good chance that that's? Well, it is. It is in the DNA because it's a. It's a. It's a. It's a line with uh, with what I think a bunch of deletions, if I recall correctly. So, so it is a mutant line of mice. But what's entirely possible is that part of what's mutated is um, uh, is is a bunch of ion channels that are, or one or more ion channels that are required for the organs to know where they're supposed to go. <clears throat> so that would that would be a pretty that would be a pretty cool story. On the topic of planaria, and sorry, I keep jumping back to this. There's something that I, I noticed. I, I, I want to know. So, you know, you said that if you can, you can get two-headed planaria, and if you cut them in half, then you'll get two-headed planaria again. Can what happens if they have uh, sexual reproduction? Do, 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 do they pass along? Because from what I understand, this is sort of like a collective phenomena. Yeah. And when you have sexual reproduction, you have sort of a sperm and an egg. And so it doesn't seem like there's enough cells there to pass on this sort of information. But have you tried this? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Uh, well, so so here's the deal. Um, we don't, I, I don't have any, first of all, we have not tried it because we haven't really been successful in getting the two heads to lay eggs. They just, they just don't seem to want to do it. Um, I, that's probably, at some point we'll probably crack it. But, but, but the, for now, we haven't been able to do it. Uh, on the one hand, I have no reason to believe that they should, that it should pass through the single cell kind of bottleneck, right, of sexual reproduction. So it may not be. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it just didn't work that way. However, uh, just as a, as a, as a um, kind of, of a bioengineering fantasy exercise, I can come up with a way that it would work even even through that in other words if it does work i think I, I would have a hypothesis of how and here's how when you in the olden days and actually not so old uh when you would uh take a uh electrophysiological electrode and you would ask um what what's the voltage of this cell you would get one number well the reason you get one number is because you poked it with one electrode and you got one number but with the voltage dies what you can see is when you stain these cells individual cells don't have one voltage. They actually have a bunch of different voltages all around their membrane. So every cell is like a soccer ball of different domains, right? Of different different colored patches on the surface that has to do with uh, micro domains of ion channel rafts and some other things that, that there are a bunch of different, different voltages on the cell surface. So imagine, so again, this is total fantasy. There's no evidence that anything like this is happening, but it's a story that, that we can sort of think about how it might work. Imagine that when the body of the frog, of the mother frog, is preparing the oocyte, it signals to that, or or let's say let's say we were talking about a, um, a planarian. So let's say a two-headed planarian. Two-headed planarian is preparing the oocyte. Uh, what it might do is impose signals on one side and the other that provide a little pattern within the surface of one cell, not across cells the way that the that the adult has, but on top of one cell. So basically, project the whole bioelectric pattern, just scale it down so that it projects to the surface of one cell. We already know that single cells, their surface is already an excitable medium that can hold more than one voltage. We, we already know that. In fact, in, fact the, in, in, in mammalian cells, which are small, like planarian cells, the, the individual domains can be as small as two microns. So that's the resolution. The resolution of it can be, it can be a little patch that's two microns. So that's actually a lot. You can, you, can, you can put a lot of information there. 
so anyway, again, uh, this is we don't have any evidence for this, but if 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 it turns out that this thing does pass through sexual reproduction, I'm going to guess that's what's happening. That it's basically imprinting the pattern on the egg as it's made. I think I think it's, it's it could be done. And I suppose egg cells are generally quite large as well, so that would help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, the pat you know the pattern that we've seen so far, at least for the head number, you know, head shape is a different story, but for head number. You really only need to store one bit of info. Well, okay, two bits of information. So you don't need a very complex pattern to be able to say how many heads. <clears throat> Another thing that sort of caught my attention is uh, I was watching one of uh, your talks that you have. You're talking about um, how these planaria, if, if you cut them in half and then they, they, I suppose they split and join form two uh, full planaria. Um, I, you were talking about how you can sort of train them to do something beforehand. Yep. You cut off their head, then they grow a new head, and they restore, they have the memory. So how how complex are these tasks that they can remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so this is, and I have to say, we we weren't the ones who first discovered this. There was a guy named James McConnell in the '60s who first uh, discovered this. He wrote a bunch of papers on this, doing these experiments manually. Everybody, you know, he caught a lot of um, a lot of flack over it because uh, people said that nah, can't be right, and then some people, you know, didn't have the patience to uh, to, to reproduce it with with planaria. It was it was a real pain these experiments. So we did it in an automated way. When I what I wanted to do, and this was we we started this in like 2013, I want to say. Uh, we created a device that's fully automated that tests and trains planaria in a fully automated way. I wanted to be able to say, look, this is all objective. You, 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 you don't think it works. Look at the movies. You tell me what you think they're doing. So, so in a way that would basically take the observer, take the human out of the out of the loop, and 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 you know just do it automatically. So, so it works. McConnell was right. It is true. Uh, however, th th um, the tasks are not particularly complex, and. I don't know that that's because they're not smart enough. I think it's because we haven't found things they care about enough. So we're using, you know, McConnell used light flashes and electric shock. You know, that's uh, that's not something that planaria are probably pretty good at at knowing what to do with. It's kind of a weird uh, thing for them. Uh, what we did was we took um, we took plastic um, petri dishes and we used a laser etcher to kind of make uh, a, a certain uh, pattern and one one place in the dish right kind of make it make it make it bumpy and then and that's where we would put the food so basically what the planarian knew is that hey when i come into this bumpy area that's where the food shows up right so it's kind of place conditioning and so then we cut their heads off and we showed that yeah on the way out uh you know when their heads regrow they're 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 more likely to uh to be able to find the food because they they, they already know the bumpy location is where they're supposed to go so you know, not a, not a super um, not a super complicated memory, but still, uh, but but you know, but it's still it shows the principle that that you can imprint new information from the somatic tissue onto a brand new brain, which should be. Uh, I I always thought that we should uh, you know we should be getting money from like Alcor or somebody who's who's you know interested in making sure that that memories that human memories uh, you know can be uh, can be put back uh, you know when 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 brains are rejuvenated. Do you think you can extrapolate to humans? Like, should we really think of the brain as being this, you know, there's a barrier between the brain where everything happens and then the outside body? Or is does this show that this barrier sort of breaks down and, and really there's a continuum from your brain to the rest of your body? Or what What, what do you learn from this? Yeah, I, I look, I don't know. We, we certainly can't claim that humans are going to have the same type of ability to pass information from their body onto a new brain. 
Uh, I also don't see any reason to assume that you couldn't. I mean, the planaria have a true centralized brain. They have all the same neurotransmitters that you and I do. They have, uh, you know, I don't see any reason to think that's impossible for humans to do that. But I also, but we certainly haven't shown that they can. It, this is, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be, this is going to come up um, in a serious way because in the next, uh, I don't know, 10 years, people will solve this stem cell biology problem of degenerative disease where they will repopulate regions of adult humans with, you know, five, six decades of memories with novels in the stem cell progeny, right, to cure degenerative disease. And then, and then we're going to find out what happens? Do you wipe it? Does that, do you end up with a blank, uh, you know, blank uh, baby basically? Or do you end up with a, with a human says, ah, I feel, I feel fantastic. And I still remember everything I had in my life. So, right. I don't know. Uh, we're going to, we're going to find out. Um, but I see no reason at this point to, to be able to decide one way or the other. The future is going to be very weird. The, the, one of the um, other things I'm sort of curious about that maybe you have some idea of is, um, you know, you hear about on, on the topic of consciousness. So you hear about um, people who take psych psychedelics and perhaps too much and they have a bad trip and have sort of permanent changes uh, made to their personality. Or you also hear about um, electroshock therapy being used to cure various ailments. Do you have an idea of what's going on there uh, in the brain uh, to, to, that give rise to these sort of permanent changes to personality and... Um, I, I, no, I'm not, I'm not the right person to ask that question. There are plenty of people that know more, more about that than I. So, so I, I won't, I don't have anything useful to say on that. However, um, I will, I will, uh, get to tell you an, a, a related story that I think is pretty interesting. Um, um, most general anesthetics. So it's interesting. Local anesthetics tend to be ion channel blockers. General anesthetics tend to be gap junction on couplers. So here is, here is, uh, an interesting, uh, thing where somebody goes into the into the hospital for some surgery they walk they walk in they're a coherent centralized intelligence right at least that's how they feel with you know with 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 goals and memories and everything else and they say boy i hope you know i hope the surgery goes well in comes the halothane gas all of the gap junctions in their brain start to get decoupled now what happens the cells are still there nobody's damaged nobody's injured nobody's poisoned but they've disconnected from each other. And now the human is gone. The person is gone, right? For the next however many hours, they're gone, uh, even though the cells are all there. But, but what's gone is that, is that, that, that's, that, that, that electrochemical, um, uh, 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 that complex electrochemical uh, state is, is missing. Now, here's the amazing part. Uh, and, and by the way, people have done um, anesthetics with, uh, you know, uh, with, with plants, with a, th that, that kind of anesthetic is exactly how we, we can induce the two head phenotype. It's, it's all the same stuff. The brain really did just borrow all this from, 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 you know, non-neural cells. But, but here's the, here's the amazing part. If some, if I didn't know that general anesthetic worked and somebody said to me, you know what we're going to do, we're going to decouple all the cells, then we're going to let them recouple. And we're going to hope that you're back to the same uh, individual that you were when you started. I always said, wow, not in a million years. Right. You are going to walk out of there, you know, either either um, a completely, you know, babbling incoherently or you're going to be you can have some other, you know, changes to your changes to your cognition that have nothing to no resemblance to what happened when you walked in. But that's not what happens when when your cells regain. Most of the time, eventually people come back to their original state. It's incredible that the brain actually finds the right uh, state after after being uncoupled and, and recoupled. However, some people don't. So there is this thing called um, 
uh, a, a post uh, post anesthetic psychotic uh, something where where they actually don't come back to normal. And there's a great uh, there's a great set of videos on YouTube that shows people coming out of general anesthesia. And, you know, they think they're pirates and gangsters and they're talking all this crazy stuff because the, their brain is still trying to find the right, uh, you know, the right set of patterns. But but most people eventually come back to normal. I think that's amazing. And I don't think we understand that very well. Does that say that sort of the self, who you are, is sort of more in the hardware than the software then? Or, or does it say that you're actually a different person after you come back around, if you believe it's held in the self? What does it tell you about your sense yeah. of self? I mean, the question of what's, what makes for a different person, of course, as philosophers have dealt with for, for a really long time, I'm not sure how useful of a question that is. I mean, I don't even know that I'm the same person that I was, you know, some years back. Uh, that I, I don't even know. I, I don't know what that does for us. Answering, be, trying, to, trying to answer that question, I'm not sure what that does for us. Um, so I don't know about that. But uh, as far as the software hardware, I think what that does say is that there is something in those cells that can be rebooted to restart the same bioelectric state that it had a while back. And we kind of already knew there had to be that because you can ask the question, well, where does the bioelectric uh, pre-pattern come from in early development? We know what happens once you have the pattern, all the cells obey and build whatever, where the pattern come from? Well, it all has to come from one cell. It has to emerge from something that that egg, that one cell egg is doing. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a guess. And it's just a guess, although some people, um, some other people like it, um, you know, Stu Hameroff and, and folks like that like it. Um, I think that um, uh, the cytoskeleton and, and maybe other components of, of, of uh, inside cells keep a long-term memory of which the bioelectric stuff is the, uh, you know, they, they basically, it's basically the, um, I don't know what you would call it. You could, you could say it's the firmware that basically like kickstarts the electrical process again, right. And gets you, gets you back where you need to be. We know the egg does that because we can see the ion channels shuttling based on, um, cytoskeletal tracks and things like that at the in early, in early development. So that's my guess, but I'm not going to pretend to really have the answer to this. Like we, we, we don't know. There's so much about this. We don't know. It's, it's crazy. A question that might eventually be answerable is, um, do you think we're ever going to have the precision to read memories? Is this something you, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think that, I think to some extent, to, to some extent, yes, in the sense that we've already had some uh, success with it in terms of neural decoding in both animals. And, and, and I think this has been done in some human patients, um, to some success is to some extent, yes, but I don't think you're going to have a one size fits all sort of solution that anybody can just walk in, you scan them and you go, oh man, you're thinking of a, you know, of this and that, I don't think that's going to work. I think that what you might be able to do is take each individual person read all kinds of uh, brain states and construct a personalized machine learning model that will allow you to say some things about that person's mental state later. I think that's doable. Like longitudinally, I think that might be doable. I do not think that um, you're going to be able to do it uh, across, across people. I realize you have to go. So I'm just going to wrap up with uh, a very brief question. Actually, very brief question and then a very, very brief follow-up question, which should be a yes or no. But um, so what's your dream for this? What, if, if everything 
turns out as you expect. What? How far do you think we can take this technology? What's the dream scenario? What What can we do in the future uh, coming out of your research? I, uh, I have a, I have a, you know, kind of a practical uh, capability dream, and then more of a philosophical dream. The the practical dream is I want a uh, I want an anatomical compiler someday that will be able to will be able to uh, tell cells what to build. If we had that, we would solve every medical problem with the exception of infectious disease. So embryonic defects, regenerate, you know, injury, cancer, aging, degenerative disease. If we knew how to tell cells what to build, all of that goes away. So, so in practical terms, what I want for this technology, whatever else needs to happen for this to work, I want to be able to tell cells exactly what structures to build so that we can relieve uh, basically the vast majority of, of human suffering and let everybody live to their full potential. That's what I would like. Um, on a more philosophical level, what I would like is to uh, break down uh, these ideas that there's something um, that there's something uniquely magical and special about the types of uh, beings that just happen to have emerged from this evolutionary hill climbing surge that's been going on on Earth, and to realize that uh, what we need is a better understanding of, uh, of 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 agency, such that we can learn to relate properly to creatures that don't look like us and and didn't come from the same place that we came from. I think that's a fundamental lesson that. Um, humanity has to deal with given all the not, never mind the exobiology of who knows what you know what we'll find but 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 really just here on earth in terms of the synthetics the ai we I, you know i i want a better understanding of what it means to have a mind that has nothing to do with how many you know human brain cells you have a final question i know you've been working on bioreactors uh, with mice to regrow limbs is is this technology at the point now where if you Unfortunately, you know, heaven forbid you lost a finger. <laughs> is this at the point where you would uh, consider trying it on yourself? No, it's not ready. It's 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 not ready for that. I unfortunately get emails uh, pretty much daily from 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 uh, you know really really uh, uh, sad stories of people who need help of that type, and I tell them all the same thing. Uh, hopefully soon, but we are not ready for that uh we it's it, we're just not ready for it so so i you know i, I we have a uh david kaplan and i have a um startup company that's focused on doing this it's called morphoceuticals inc i fully expect that in my lifetime we will be able to see this happening but it is nowhere near ready now michael evan it's been a pleasure thank you so very much yeah great question <laughs> thank you escaped sapiens